All right, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you have this Bible, it's page 858, 858. Um, I really, I'm really thankful for the intentionality that Michael puts into the songs and how they're tying into what I get to talk about today, which is the gospel of King Jesus. Um, last week, if you were here, we kind of introduced our mission as a church. And our, our mission is to see people deeply transformed by God's grace through the gospel of King Jesus in Memphis to the ends of the earth. And we really focused on this phrase, deeply transformed. And we talked about how are people formed and then how are people transformed. Remember this from last week? How are we formed? Well, we said at the center of our formation, formation isn't a choice, it's inevitable. It happens to us. At the center of that formation is story, the story of what we believe. And so that's really where our focus is going to go today. If if the stories of what we believe shape us and the stories that we tell ourselves about our identity and the people that we're with and then the things that we do, all of that has a formational effect on us. So what would it look like to practice transformation? We said that transformation is where you live into the story of the gospel of King Jesus and you take on the identity of who God says you are and then you begin to live with his beloved family and you start practicing these rhythms of discipleship in holistic ministry, all empowered by the Holy Spirit. If that's a lot in 30 seconds, just go back and watch the video from last week. It, it was like 45 minutes, so um, it, it makes sense it's a lot in 30 seconds. But right here, just for a second, I, I'm just going to pause. And you may have never seen anybody do this in a sermon. We do this a lot here in various places. Just pause and just ask yourself, what is the story that's competing in, in my own life, in my own heart? What is the story that's competing to be the centering story? Let me give you a couple of examples, and then you can kind of just take 30 seconds and talk to the people around you. Um, there's a couple of stories that are competing. One is almost like a sub-Christian story, and this is a temptation for a lot of believers. There was some researchers named Christian Smith. Um, years ago, they were studying young people, teenagers, 20-somethings in the United States, and they started looking at their faith lives. And here's some of their conclusions, kind of what they came out with. They said time and time again in our interviews, we met young people who called themselves Christian, who grew up with Christian parents, who were regular participants in Christian congregations. Do you see this? These are church-going Christian people. Yet they had no readily accessible faith vocabulary, few recognizable faith practices, and little ability to reflect on their lives religiously. There were exceptions, but not many. He says, for most of these kids, it seemed like this was the first time anyone, any adult, had ever asked them about their faith. They, they were Christian, but it didn't impact their beliefs, their language, their people, or their habits. And so you know what happens to most of these people? They are no longer Christians by the time they get through college. Because there's this temptation. He says it, it's not even discernible as Christianity. Um, there's... Some more researchers, Kenda Creasy Dean wrote a book called Almost Christian. Almost Christian. She says they're not Christian. I mean, they may say they are, but it's not, it's not historic Christianity that they're following. And they, they coined this term moralistic therapeutic deism, which is God generally just wants you to be a good person. He wants you to not hurt other people. He's basically a long way off, but he can be relied upon for help when you really need him. That's Christianity today. That is the temptation. That is the story. And so Christianity becomes this, this add-on. It's an elective. You know what an elective is? 
It's like, you, well, you can play sports, you can play in the band, you can go to church, you can just, it's just one thing and another list of things. That is a, a major temptation. A, a story of Christianity that isn't all-inclusive, a story of Christianity that's compartmentalized. Of course, there's, there's other stories of Christianity um, that are just on offer today. There's political stories that are on offer. There's the progressive story. There's the conservative story. Those stories are on. But I think maybe the most popular kind of anti-Christian story is the story of secularism. Uh, secularism wants the kingdom, but without the king. It wants you know, justice socially, and it wants fairness, and it wants to elevate groups of people, and it wants people to be kind to one another, and it wants love for everybody, but not without, but totally without Jesus. It wants the kingdom without the king. Um, and then, the, of course, if you're sitting here, you probably know some of your own heart stories, where really you center your life on family, or on career success, or on education, or on some wound from your past. There's there's, your kids are this temptation to center your story on, on them, and they end up defining who you are and forming who you are. Can you just take 30 seconds and talk about what, what is vying for the centering place in terms of story? What are the stories that compete for your attention? All right, 30 seconds. All right, thanks. Thanks for doing that. Some of you sitting alone, Taylor, I'm watching you just sipping coffee. Hoping nobody asks. I do want this teaching to be personalized, but it's also kind of for us as a as a whole church to be able to articulate what is the story we put at the center of what we do as a people. And the story that we point at put at the center is the story of the gospel of King Jesus. And this story transforms everything. If we're going to be deeply transformed by God's grace, how does it happen? It happens through the gospel of King Jesus. We're going to talk about what is the gospel today. So what is the gospel? It, gospel is this Greek word that I think meant something different then than it means today. So it's, it's resulted in a lot of gospel confusion, which is interesting because the word gospel is starting to show up everywhere. Have you heard of gospel preaching or gospel churches or gospel ministry or gospel centered? People love the word gospel. Some people are adding it on before uh, things like gospel-centered. And some people are adding on after things like prosperity gospel and social gospel. Um, here's, a, here's a clue to break that. <laughs> if it comes before, it's apparently a good thing. If it comes after, it's apparently a bad thing. Gospel is central, but it's confused. 
there was a professor, his name's Scott McKnight. He says, I, I got an email. He wrote a book called The King Jesus Gospel, and he shares his story. He says, he gets an email. I know you're, you're probably really busy. If you have time, have a question about the gospel. I notice that the gospel writers often include in their gospel announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. My question is, what is good news about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the descendant of David? The Professor McKnight, he says, I read that letter three times and I shook my head in disbelief each time. We've gotten to a point in American Christianity where we don't know what gospel means. Where the Messiah seems like it doesn't belong in our articulations of the gospel. Somehow, that's the point we've gotten to. N.T. Wright, he's another New Testament scholar. He says, many Christians today, when reading the New Testament, never question what the word gospel means, but they assume that since they know from their own context what they mean by the gospel, Paul and others must have meant exactly the same thing. You see what he's saying? We think we know because we, we have a word. We all use the word gospel. It means something. It's not just style of music, although if you talk about gospel music, you know what that meant. Then you import our modern meaning back on the ancient meaning. He says, but then we start misunderstanding the text. We start missing this category. So what do we mean? Years ago, I was at a, a conference at Pepperdine University, and there was a speaker named John Ortberg. He came there, and he was speaking. He had us huddle up in the triads, so I'm not the only one who does it. And I was actually, in, though we were in Malibu, California, I was sitting with two pastors from churches in Memphis. It was really unusual that we kind of all ended up in the same place. And Ortberg asked this question. He says, what is the gospel? And he had us in Mark 1, and he's asking this question of what is the gospel? And it was so striking because I heard two very different visions of what gospel meant. One was a vision of, like, God's love. And then one was a vision of Jesus died so that we could go to heaven. Okay, so one is talking about heaven hereafter. One is talking about love in the present. And I think that probably captures what most of us think of gospel. Because many of us think of gospel as it's how we're saved. It's a theory of atonement. Maybe it's the doctrine of justification. It's, it's that Jesus in our place, or it's Jesus by faith alone. I remember in my background, when I was a kid, when I gave my life to Jesus, I was convinced of the truth of a gospel, a gospel, that I was, I was a sinner, and I was destined for hell. But if I gave my life to Christ in baptism, I could be washed clean, and I could be welcomed into heaven when I died. You see, the, the problem in, in that gospel was that I have guilt. And so you can be forgiven. And the problem was underneath the guilt that you will go to hell. And then another problem was you also have this really great alternative. You get heaven instead of those things. Now, um, sometimes the gospel is what you need to do. Sometimes it's what has been done for you. But the news that I have today is that though all of that is true, the gospel isn't all about you. So those things that we believe and we mean by the word gospel, they may be true, but today I want to remind you that the gospel is not all about you. Remember this scene in Princess Bride? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. N.T. Wright basically says this. He says, I'm perf perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. 
I just don't think it's what Paul means. In other words, I'm not denying that the usual meanings are things that people ought to say or preach about or believe. I simply wouldn't use the word gospel to denote those things. So what is the gospel? If it's not those things that we all gave our lives to and we we believe that those were the gospel, what is the gospel? We're going to dive into the text today. Um, This is going to be interesting. Uh, Maybe... This may be a style of preaching. I don't do it again. We're just going to we're gonna try this today. But we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just read a couple of verses, and I'm going to highlight words on the screen to use as springboards to make a few points of sources for how we're going like, to put together a picture of first century gospel meaning rather than 21st century um, Im- imported into this text. And so there's going to be a lot of phrases on the screen, and it's going to show us seven different ways seven different ways of understanding what the gospel kind of sources to get a picture of what the gospel means. Let's, let's just start by reading. This is the beginning of the good news. Already we have our, our first phrase. And it's this word, euangelion, in Greek. This word is not our word gospel. Do you see it? That it's in a totally different language. Which means it has its own context. It has its own meaning. It has its own usage. It means something different than what ours means. So what is this word? Well, it's two words. It's the word good and the word message. And those are put together. So some of our translations will say gospel is good news. Yes. Or glad tidings. Yes. All of those things. That, that just makes sense of the words. But those words have a context. And those contexts have a meaning. So let's, let's dive in. Um, the first source of understanding what these words mean is the Hebrew scriptures. Um, the story of Israel the Old Testament, whatever phrase you want here. And the reason I think we have to go here is because that's exactly where Mark goes. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. You see, he goes straight into the Hebrew Scriptures to describe what he means by gospel. Because gospel isn't a word out of thin air. It has this long history in Judaism. There's a Greek translation of their Old Testaments. And this word shows up all the time. Let me give you a few for instances. David, you remember, he's been anointed king. But there's another king named Saul. And David is basically waiting for Saul to die. He's had the opportunity to kill him, but he's not going to do it because he is the Lord's anointed. The king is the anointed one. David's not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And so he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. And then the day that Saul dies, they send a messenger who carries gospel gospel to David. Good news, David. The king is dead. You're now the king. David said, that's not good. There's this irony in the Old Testament usage of the word good news or gospel that most of the time when it's used, it's actually devastating news. It's the death of a a mentor. It's the death of a king. It's the death of a child. What does this word have to do with good news then? If you look at how it's used in the Old Testament, every time it's the change or the securing of a kingdom. That's what this word means. When the king is dead and there's a new king, what's that word? It's gospel. It's good news. David has a, a son. His name is Absalom. He's rebelling against him. He's trying to make himself king. Absalom dies. They send a messenger to David. Good news. They say, good news. Your son's dead. 
Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I have died instead of you. You see, in, in the Old Testament, it's Tim Mackey, he's the Bible Project guy. Um, if you've ever heard the voice on the podcast or the video, this is him. He says, in the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. You're king now. That's what this word means in the Hebrew context. But in, in this section, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So it's not just talking about Samuel. It's not just talking about kings. He says, there's a meaning in Isaiah that I'm trying to capture. And Isaiah loves this word. Good news. The first time Isaiah uses it is in Isaiah chapter 40. All right. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then do you know where he quotes? He quotes Isaiah chapter 40. And it's this prophecy, it's about someone who's going to come and it's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Israel is in exile. They're enslaved by their enemies in Babylon. He says, but God is coming back. He's coming home. And before he comes home, there's going to be someone who's going to prepare his way. And he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And then do you know who this person is? In Mark 1, it's the man John the Baptist. So he shares this prophecy about, about the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, and then in comes John the Baptist, which means, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord, returning to his people. And he's tapping into this, this usage of gospel in the book of Isaiah. Here's the announcement in Isaiah chapter 40. Behold your God. That Three words, that's it. That's, that's the announcement. Behold your God. A couple of chapters later in Isaiah, we get another announcement. Good news. Your God reigns. God's king. God is coming back, and God is becoming king. Well, how's it happen, Isaiah? Isaiah says there is an anointed one. He is he's Christ. He's anointed. And he is actually going to end up suffering for the sins of the people. The suffering servant is going to become the king and then that king will proclaim good news to all the nations. That's the hope of Isaiah. Do you see that it has a specific meaning that's exactly in line with the Old Testament meaning? Somebody is becoming king. And Isaiah says, God is becoming king in the anointed one. That's, that's pretty interesting to me. All right, so our first source, the Hebrew scripture says that it's about king, and it's about kingdom. Specifically, it's about God becoming king through the anointed one. The second source. The second source is the Roman Empire. Because the Jews weren't the only people using the word euangelion or gospel. The Romans were too. It was Roman imperial propaganda. Let me show you one here. You see this phrase, the beginning of the good news. This is not the first time that that phrase has been inscribed in an important document. About the Messiah, the Son of God. Take a look at this document. This is from the inscription at Priene. This is in, in like Turkey today. This is outside Italy. You know, Rome's in Italy. This is outside Turkey. It's across the sea. Do you see the year? B.C. This is before the birth of Christ. Um, it's an inscription about uh, Caesar Augustus, his birthday. Since Providence, the goddess, capitalized, has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, she has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus. Do you see it? The God is just ordering all things to finally give us Augustus whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. Do you see the context here? 
um, is civil war. This guy ended civil war and brought peace on earth. Peace on earth. He is the savior of the world. Look at how it keeps going. He, by his appearance, the Caesar, he excelled even our anticipation, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by, and then it keeps going. Do you see what it's saying? Caesar Augustus is God become king, and he is the savior of the world who's brought peace. Give your allegiance to him. This guy's the king. Mark opens his, his gospel with this phrase. In the Roman world, he writes this to the Roman church and says, this is the beginning of the true good news and is not of Caesar Augustus. It is of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. He is the Messiah, the son of God. You see, all of these are political counterclaims. We use the word gospel almost exclusively in religious terms. In the first century, it's almost exclusively political terms. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is king Caesar is not. This is, this is N.T. Wright. The kingdom of God, this gospel of the kingdom, historically and theologically considered, is a slogan. The basic meaning is the hope that Israel's God is going to rule Israel and the world and that Caesar or Herod or anyone else of their ilk is not. And the gospel writers chose this word to write into the Roman Empire that Jesus Christ is the true Lord. You see, it's about king. So our, our phrase that means someone is becoming king, that God is becoming king, is this subversive counter-kingdom. That's the first two uses. Let's look at the third use. The gospel according to the gospels. By gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Those four books we call the gospels. But there's an interesting thing about the gospels. There's four of them. But the word is always singular. It's the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Matthew or, or Luke or John. It's singular. It's one story. All of them are telling the one gospel story. What are they telling? The good news, not of Caesar, not of Herod. They're telling the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. That's the word anointed from Isaiah. The Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. The gospels, I, I told Reed this week, I really wish I had like two hours so that we could work through and just summarize the whole gospel of Mark. Because I, exactly. That's, that's where I'm at too. Some of you are on board for that right now. Um, we can go eat CC's and then just drop back over and do that. Maybe another time. Um, so what is the gospel according to the gospels? Every gospel, each, each of the gospel accounts, it tells the same basic story. That God has become human in the person of Jesus to fulfill the story of Israel and Abraham. And that he proclaimed and demonstrated the kingdom and he, he battled against the spiritual forces of evil. And then because of his preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom and claiming to be the son of God, the king, they crucified him. Are you a king then? You say rightly that I am the king. And they crucified the king and they crown him with a crown. And they give him the robe, and they give him a scepter. And he becomes king through the crucifixion. 
The crucifixion in the Gospels, it slows down. Years pass in some of the chapters, but in the crucifixion, it's moments, it's hours, as they show that God has become king through the crucified, suffering servant. He's buried, he's raised, and then he empowers his disciples, sending them out in the power of the Holy Spirit to go make disciples. The Gospel of Matthew, for instance, ends with this great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the gospel story. That's the gospel according to the gospels. But there's this weird thing happening in the 21st century American church where we're asking this question, legitimately asking this question, do the gospels preach the gospel? Like, What are we asking? Do, do the gospels preach Paul's gospel? There are conferences on that topic because our gospel is unrecognizable in the gospels themselves. But here's the news. The gospel, according to Mark, is the gospel. It's, it's not hard. The, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the same story of how God has become king through the suffering son of God, Jesus. They are the same person. So the gospel, according to the Hebrew scriptures, Roman propaganda, the Gospels, they're all saying the same thing. What, what about Jesus? What, what does he say? If you skip down a few verses, it goes through um, how John prepared his way and John baptized him. And it says at his baptism that he's become the son. He's, this is my beloved son. He's the son of God, the king. But then it gets to verse 14. Mark 1, verse 14, it says, John was put in prison and Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As I was sitting in that uh, lecture by Ortberg in Malibu, not a bad place to go for a conference, by the way. It's incredible. There was a vision of the gospel as God loves you. There was a vision of the gospel that God wants you to go to heaven. But the vision of the gospel in, in the words of Jesus is that the kingdom of God has come. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the king. The gospel of God, look, here's a little just cool subtle way that the gospel writers are showing that that's Jesus. Do you see verse 1, the gospel of Jesus? Do you see verse 14, the gospel of God? It's this claim that those are the same thing. He is the Lord. He is God, now become king. And he is announcing his kingdom. He's ushering it in. This is why he's crucified. Because the gospel according to Jesus is that he is the king and that Caesar is not or the high priest is not. He's this anointed royal figure. He is the king, not just a king. So it's the fulfillment of all of us. Now, I'm, I'm going to go much faster through these next couple. And I'm, I'm not going to ask you to even even turn there. Let me just drop a couple more things that confirm this picture of gospel that we've already got. Number five, the gospel according to the apostles preaching. Now, David did an exceptional job reading. I love your kind of pausing deliberateness as you were reading Acts 2. Do you remember our reading today? It was Peter's sermon. You could legitimately call this sermon in Acts 2 the first gospel sermon. What does Peter say? He does not say that Jesus died so you could go to heaven when you, <laughs> when you die. He, he never says that. Instead, what he says 
is that Jesus has become Lord and Christ. Jesus is the king. He's the king in the line of David. David's talking about this eternal kingdom. And he's saying that this Jesus whom you crucified has now been raised and he's been given the throne of David in an eternal way in heaven at God's right hand. That's a gospel sermon. If you go through all the sermons and acts, they all say the same thing. They are that Jesus Christ is the king of heaven and earth. He's the saving king. Number six, how does this line up with Paul's letters? Again, some people are asking, does Paul preach the gospel? Or do the gospels have the go? Yes. Yes, they do. Let me just show you, I think, the clearest definition of, of Paul's writings about the gospel. Now, there's a couple. Again, I, I wish we had two hours. 1 Corinthians 15, it, it says, you know, this is the gospel, uh, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to many witnesses. But then the rest of that chapter is all about how Jesus has become king, and he is the victorious one even over death. But that's not the one I'm going to. All right, in Romans 1. I think this is Paul's kind of most clear definition of what the gospel is in his most important kind of theological work on gospel and its implications, the letter of Romans. This is how he opens, Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. When you see it, Christ Jesus, um, a lot of translations will show that that's actually a, a title. It means King Jesus. So he's a servant of King Jesus, called to be an apostle, and Paul has been set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. What's the gospel, Paul? The gospel is that the son, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the, the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He is King Jesus, our Lord. That's the gospel, according to Paul. So all of these so far line up pretty well, but what about the early church? Now, I, I do not put the early church writings on the same kind of par as I put scripture. So them being on this list is more of confirmation. How did the early church make sense of what happened in the life of Jesus? Well, the way that they summarized the, the teaching they, they started ordering it, and they, they put it into what they called rule of faith. This is kind of the heart of Christianity in the first century and the second century. And then that rule of faith was developed a little bit, and it became like the Apostles' Creed. So rule of faith, Apostles' Creed, these are early summaries of the core of Christianity. And you know what they, they say? They say exactly <laughs> what we're saying, that that the the. the the triune God, a Father, Son, and Spirit, has made Jesus king, that he was God born in the flesh, who did miracles, and who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that he was buried and he was raised, and that he's now Lord of heaven and earth. All of these things are pointing in the same direction. So where are they pointing? The summary, the short line summary that I like to use is that Jesus is the saving king. It is true that he will save you, but the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about events that have happened. Now, I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a second. All right, so what, what's the fuller picture of what it means to say that Jesus is the saving king? Let me give you 12 dimensions. If you're doing welcome home now or later, these are all in the workbook. The first dimension is that Jesus preexisted 
as God the Son. He is, he is God, the Creator. He is the Lord, Yahweh, come in the flesh. And He was sent by the Father. He is, this is important to them, He's not like a lone ranger doing His own thing. He is, he is not the Gnostic King. He is, he is the fulfillment of Hebrew Scripture. He's sent by God the Father. He took on human flesh in the line of David. He proclaimed and he demonstrated the kingdom of God. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All right, we're halfway there. He appeared to many witnesses and then he ascended to be enthroned at the right hand of God. And because he is at the right hand of God enthroned, he can send the spirit. You notice this, the sending of the spirit doesn't happen until he becomes king. He ascends and then in Acts 2, he sends out the spirit and to his people. And when his people get the Spirit, he says, wait, wait, wait. All right, now go. They, they, he, then he sends his people to proclaim the gospel to all nations. And the final piece is that he will return to judge and to rule all nations. That's the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus Christ is the saving king. This is what it means. Whether you or I believe it. Whether you or I obey it. This is the gospel. Because the gospel is about facts. It's about history. It's about news. Something has happened that changed the world. There are a lot of religions that have ideas. Christianity has ideas, but this isn't one of them. This, it's not an opinion. You know, this isn't some column. This is front page news that something happened in history and the world is now different for it. This isn't advice. Jesus isn't just a teacher. Jesus Christ is the king and he became king through his cross and resurrection. All right. Hopefully I've convinced you. Now, if this is true, and it is, it happened. He is the king. He is ascended, and he is sitting today at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He, he's functioning today as the king of heaven and earth. If this is true, and it is, what would that mean for us? Now, the gospel does call us to do something. It, it is on its own, but it does call us to something. This, if you keep reading in Mark, this is exactly what flows after verse 15. He says, repent and believe the good news. And then he walks up on some fishermen, and he says, come, follow me. You know what they did? It says they left everything and followed him. This, this is the call of the gospel, of total surrender in allegiance to one who has authority over us. Come follow me. Yes, Lord, you can have it all. How does that look? All right, two, two ways that looks, and then two ways that looks for us. It, it looks personal and public. Let me just describe what I mean by personal. Uh, Paul talks about the gospel is the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who puts their trust, it's the power for salvation. It changes you. Um, in the language of John 3 or 1 Peter 1, you, by the gospel, you can be born again. The old self can become the new self by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the king, by surrendering your life to him. When you surrender, it changes you. But this change is not a one-time event. And his book, Center Church, Tim Keller says it like this. He says, it's inaccurate to think 
that the gospel is what saves non-Christians, and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to the biblical principles. Do you hear that? It, that? That's not true. It's more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. You see, the mechanism for conversion that gives us new birth is the gospel. The mechanism for sanctification, how we grow, is the gospel. There's not like another technique. It's gospel. It's surrendering even more deeply to Jesus Christ as the king. And so our tools for ministry are, are the gospel. It's like that, that's it. What would it look like to come to believe the gospel more deeply, to come to trust more deeply in our hearts and with our bodies and with our families, to come to surrender even new parts of our life. That's what we hope to find out together. To surrender it all to him is this personal power. But in saying it's personal, it can sound like I mean it's private. This is, this is the story that competes, I think, at a cultural level for Christianity. The story is that your faith is private. And so if you go to a Christian school, you can talk about Jesus there. But if you go to a public school, no, HR may be on you. Jesus isn't king here. <laughs> you see that story. It's embedded uh, in, in government. There's this separation of, of church and state. We have like Christian music and then secular music. We have Christian schools and secular schools. And there's this idea implicit. There's this story in the center of those that Jesus isn't king there. But that story is totally debunked by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the king everywhere. So it's personal, but it's also public. There, there's no privatized faith in Christianity. And I, I admit that is a cultural story that's putting pressure on, on Christians to, to kind of succumb to that. That's just not this story. The gospel is personal. It is public truth because it happened. It's real. Uh, in other words, say this, Jesus is king everywhere. There's no domain that Christ doesn't claim as his own. I, th I think the, the gospel confronts the separations that we think are there. Um, it confronts every sphere of life. I, I believe, because the gospel is true, that Jesus Christ is as much king at the public school up the street as he is at the Christian school down the road. Um, because the kingship of Jesus means that everything is subject to him. Everyone is subject to him. Like this, this is the gospel. It's, it's just expansive. So if that's the case, it's personal and public, what would that look like in our life together? It looks like a weaving of gathered and scattered. Gathered and scattered. In the workbook this week, you're going to have a diagram to kind of make sense of this. But what we do here matters so much because when we gather, the gospel is proclaimed and our hearts are made open through, through music and prayer and, and especially the table. We start proclaiming the gospel at the table, that Jesus Christ is king, and we start reminding one another and surrendering. We, we start opening ourselves up to his word and to preaching. The gathering of the church is when we come together to be reminded of the gospel, and then we go out. We go out into our personal lives. And now we take the gospel with us into our personal lives, and it changes our morning routines. It changes how we interact with our phones and our screens. It changes how we interact with people. It, it means in my family that we start our days with Scripture, that, that we 
we open up and we, we check on people at the table with our, our little kids. It means that we sing a lot at home. You know, we have uh, evening rhythms of doxology and other kind of nighttime songs. This is because we believe that what happens here on Sunday belongs in our personal space too. But then it also belongs in our public space. It belongs in, in the world where we work for evangelism and we work for justice. We try to bring the whole gospel to bear on the whole world. And it's not just that we need a church here, but we think in Memphis to the ends of the earth, the, the gospel has to take root. And so we want to see church planting around this city, around this county, around this region, so that we can start sending people to the ends of the earth. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You see, it, it changes personal, it changes public. And the more we weave that back and forth, you know what I mean by weave? It's, um, our, our daughter was making these little bracelets with like a little loom where she was weaving something back and forth. And the longer you weave, the thicker and stronger it gets. The, the movement that we are about, the strength that we hope to have comes through this rhythm of gathering and scattering where we bring the gospel to bear on the world, and then we bring the gospel to bear on our hearts, where we come to the table, we bring the gospel. It's just the more we do that, the stronger we get. The more movement we have, the more fruit God bears through the gospel of King Jesus. Okay, what does that look like? It looks like these six habits. We're going to talk more about these later, so I'm just going to kind of introduce them once again. This is what it looks like to come follow me to live a life of discipleship to Jesus together in our personal lives, in our gathering, and in the world. Up, in, and out, we weave these habits of giving thanks and reflecting on the word and asking deeper questions and communing with God, eating together, and serving our neighbors. If we can do those things together, I think we can have a strong, durable tapestry of the kingdom of God in this place. Okay, we started with you and your um, kind of row, just talking about the competing stories. Here's what I know, though, about every competing story outside the gospel. Every competing story ends the same. Family, work, kids, education, sex, money, you know, you, whatever story, secularism, all, all of the stories, they end the same. They end with me in a casket. Some of those stories will just take everything from you. They will require a sacrifice. But they all end the same. They all end with a death either way. But there is one story that does not require you to give the sacrifice. Because he made the sacrifice. There is one story that actually has hope beyond the grave. He looks at David and he says, that is not the hope. Your political, uh, your, your history, those people cannot save you. His tomb is here to this day. But the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. And he reigns from heaven today. And he gives us hope of eternal life in glory. That's the gospel hope. That's the only story that can sustain us through this life and into the next one. I'm going to, would you stand? I'm going to just read 
a passage over you, and we'll close with this. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's a trustworthy saying. Paul's prayer, mine for you. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. May God be praised in the name of King Jesus. Amen.